Welcome to Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. My name is Dr. Clayton Johnson. I'm a partner in veterinarian at Carthage Veterinary Service. And uh, I want to start the, the podcast as we often do by giving a shout out to the folks at swineweb.com. Um, we're very fortunate to have swineweb.com's assistance in, in putting this podcast together and helping us with all the technical details of, of how, do you, how do you set up the podcast studio? How do you create good material and put it out there? Um, thank you to Jim and his team for their support. And thank you to you guys, the listeners, for your ideas on content and, and, uh, and the feedback that you've given us on the podcast so far. We are really lucky to have with us today in the podcast studios, Dr. Cesar Corzo from the University of Minnesota. Dr. Corzo is a, a world-renowned swine expert um, who comes to us today to talk to us about a really important topic in the industry, PERS management. Dr. Corzo, welcome to the podcast. Do you want to give everybody kind of an introduction to yourself and your team there at the University of Minnesota? Sure. First of all, thank you for the invite. Really happy to be here and excited to have this conversation with you. Clayton. So uh, yeah, just to start us off, some of some of the listeners will know me, but others may not. So I'm uh, originally from Colombia. Like you said, I'm a swine veterinarian with a little bit of experience in industry and uh, in academia. Right now I'm with the University of Minnesota the, with the swine group. Uh, I hold the, the Lehman chain swine health and productivity. I've been here for almost four years and a half, pretty much. And uh, within that group of, uh, within the group of the, of the university, I lead the efforts of the Morrison Swine Health Monitoring Project. And as some of you know, a project that Dr. Morrison started over a decade ago in which we track endemic diseases in the breeding herd in the United States, right? Right now we have half of those, half of that population on our database and we provide a, a weekly report. So we track PERS, PED, Seneca, Delta coronavirus. So that helps us understand the trends throughout the year, help us with uh, also creating a database that uh, our team with the, within, the, within the group uh, can run different analysis, of course. And this is all with one goal and it's learn, right? Since we get a lot of people sharing information, we can share back our results so that we can bridge those knowledge, uh, gap knowledges and, uh, and then we can continue to generate interventions, right? For the I guess for the better good, right, of the industry. Absolutely. You know, it, from my perspective, <clears throat> the MSHIMP report takes a lot of opinion and conjecture out of what's going on with disease prevalence in the United States industry. Um, every, every winter, we all think it's the worst winter ever, right? Um, everything's working against you as a pig veterinarian. I know you know this, right? But the days are short. You wake up, it's dark. You go to work, you deal with PERS and PED all day. You go home, it's dark. And it's really easy to feel like this, you know, it can't get any worse. This has got to be as bad as it is. But that data set with, you know, somewhere around half of the sows in the United States included in it gives you some objective information to say, is it really worse from a prevalence standpoint? You know, is this following a, a previous pattern? And most importantly, when we put in interventions, when we do things differently as an industry, we should be able to see the impacts from that in this information. So I think it's, it's really valuable information, not only to get perspective of what's going on today, but also to review the decisions you're making today going forward? Do we see changes in how long it takes a farm to eliminate PERS? Do we see biosecurity improvements as the industry adopts filtration and things like that? And hopefully we see less PERS outbreaks. Um, you know, I think 
one of the, the limitations potentially of the data set is it doesn't really tell us about severity of PERS, unfortunately. So we may see that, you know, this year we're having a similar number of PERS outbreaks, but we really can't tell if those outbreaks are mild strains that aren't really causing big problems or if they're really severe strains. Do you guys get any sort of um, anecdotal feedback from the producers you work with on that? Any, any thoughts about how we can better uh, make objective the evaluation of how severe the isolates are? And that's a great point. And, uh, and I think when, when, maybe when Dr. Morrison started assembling this, he says, let's just look at uh, the trend itself before we get into severity. Uh, and, 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 and yes, every now and then, when we get all these, uh, these reports, uh, we get some comments as far as this strain is really bad. It's mm -hmm. really, really aggressive. It's really, really virulent, killing a lot of pigs. Um, but we always have to keep in mind that it depends uh, who, where that information is coming from, right? Because mm -hmm. if I'm a producer that don't get to see PERS that often, well, my first break, even if it's a mild strain, is going to be a massive outbreak, right? Absolutely. So, so that's, that's something that I think we need to get better at. You know, I think we need to figure out a way to classify these strains according to virulence. Now, it may not be a good... Uh, it might not be a perfect tool, but I think it'll get us closer to, hey, this XYZ strain is really aggressive as compared to this other strain, right? So mm -hmm. as of now, we're not capturing that. We've talked about it, and I think we may be able to develop some, some sort of guidelines, you know, mm -hmm. uh, just so that we can start talking about the same or having the same language when we're referring to virulence, right? I guess a good example was, last, well, I think it continues to be the, the latest emerging virus, right? In some mm -hmm. farms, it was a disaster. Other farms, it wasn't that bad. Uh, but there was no farm that had mild, mild outbreaks. I think mm -hmm. all of them had an average kind of purse outbreak, but others had massive outbreaks. So I think that's where we're going to have to start figuring out a way to, to tease those apart of as far as how many were really, really bad and how many were kind of the average outbreak. So that's an opportunity that uh, that we need to start or continue to think about. Yeah, I think there's definitely appetite from veterinarians that I speak with and producers as well to try and help quantify that. Um, you know, Caesar, you and I were just at the uh, American Association of Swine Veterinarians annual meeting in Indianapolis a couple weeks ago. I actually traveled with some of our, our research team at Carthage to go to the Midwest Animal Sciences meeting in Omaha earlier this week. And I can tell you that the hallway conversations for me, I'm sure the same for you, are just loaded with PERS and, and specifically the 144 lineage 1C. And the, the anecdotal feedback we get that for a lot of the herds that get it, they're really struggling with it. Can you comment a little bit, Caesar, on, on the MSHIMP data set and, you know, what are we seeing in the data? Um, you know, is, is the outbreak from a prevalence standpoint, you know, worse than other years, or is it really just kind of a severe virus for those that have it, but maybe the number of outbreaks is pretty similar to what we've seen in other years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when the data has, has uh, that, that's when data sets need to be looked at carefully and uh, make sure that you're interpreting uh, carefully what uh, what that data set is telling you, right? Now, for our data set, from an incidence perspective, the yearly trend kind of stayed the same. Uh, overall, I think it kind of stayed the same. Some people would ask us, how come you're talking about this massive 144 L1C outbreak and your, your incidence is kind of staying 
uh, roughly in the same ballpark as uh, the previous years, right? I said, yeah, it makes, I, I understand why people were expecting like a spike in that, uh, we call it the chart the one, right? The first, the first cumulative incidents. Well, it didn't change much in there until we got to this summer, spring, summer, right? We saw kind of a, a, an interesting spike there. Now, when we look at that same data, but from a different perspective, which is what we call the chart four in our, pro, in our, in our report, we see this, this cyclical behavior of this virus over 10 years, 11 years, we did see a massive change in the latest curve, right? In the sense that we know that PERS, the, the epidemic would start during the fall, mid fall, let's put it that way, and it'll end February, March, somewhere around there. Now, during 2000, uh, 2021, we saw a huge spike during the summer. A very massive uh, outbreak. Yeah, it was kind of clustered. It was kind of growing from a geographical perspective. And that was kind of eye-opening in the sense, what happened here, right? What is this virus telling us here? So we did see that change, which is first time in 10, 11 years. Yeah, we would I mean, we see outbreaks during the summer, but not at this with this magnitude, right? So we said, okay, at least we know that with our data, we're capturing this all behaviors that uh, pathogens may have, uh, right? And it starts generating a lot of questions of what are we doing wrong? What are we doing right? What's happening? What do we need to start working on so that we can figure out how to avoid these uh, events in the, in, the, in the coming future, right? So uh, I think we were able to understand a little bit of that. Yes, it's kind of retrospective in the sense that not until the data gets to our databases, we won't be able to get all these calculations and put this on a graph and share it with people, right? It's kind of always a little bit delayed. However, it tells us what's happening so that we can start comparing season by season, right? I know that, um, uh, like you mentioned, in the summer outbreak, it was kind of clustered and that we saw particular locations that would have one introduction and that one introduction would turn into many other farms in the area that would become infected. Lots of speculation as to why, but one of the things we know is that there's a, a lot of virus in infected pigs with this lineage 1C strain, that the CT counts are lower than they have historically been for other emerging viruses, and therefore there's more virus in the pig, and one would presume more virus in the environment and an easier transmission from that perspective. Do you know if, um, if, if we're learning anything more to that end on, on why this virus tends to kind of really blow up within a region once it gets into that? That region, even if it's just one farm to start with, it tends to take a lot of them down with it. And I think that's uh, that's one question that uh, has generated a lot of, uh, like you say, a lot of speculation, right? We, we tried to do some projects here and there, case control projects. We went and did some environmental sampling. We couldn't really find a good piece of evidence that would be the aha moment that, okay, that's how this virus uh, took advantage of the situation, right? What we do know is that once we've done a little bit of molecular diagnostics, right? At the whole genome level, we said, well, this virus is, I mean, this was a recombinant, which is no surprise. I mean, this is not a surprise. Virus continue to mix and recombine and recombine over and over. But what we found is that it's got one little segment or one little piece of an older virus that was bad, 
And that's a, an, an RFLP pattern that it's the 174. So folks, those listeners may remember four or five years ago that we have a nasty outbreak uh, throughout, I guess, the country as well of a one seven with a 174 virus. So we found, uh, so there's a student uh, within our group. Uh, his name is Nakarin. We call him Son. He's, he's really, really smart with looking at how he looks at sequences. And he did those recombination analysis and he pointed that out and said, okay, so this, what this is telling us is, yep, a recombination event, no surprise there, that happens pretty much every day. But this particular strain was able to borrow this small segment from an older virus. Once it got the whole package together, it proved to be a very fit pathogen, right? So what that means for our listeners is, hey, I'm good at replicating. And if I'm good at replicating, I'm going to use all those cells that I can use in a pig. Of course, once I start replicating on all those cells at a higher rate or a higher speed, I'm going to put out more virus. So that's when we start begging the question of, hey, we have multiple viruses co-circulating in the United States. How come this one was able to beat the other ones, right? Because it's a race uh, and uh, it looks like it was it looks like it points towards, hey, there's way more or higher concentration here because when we look at our data set and when we look at our maps as far as what kind of viruses were circulating in that same region, there were farms that never got it, but they got another virus, right? Mm -hmm. So it was kind of strange uh, that uh, we saw that behavior and we still don't have a good answer, which is frustrating, you know, because it makes our job way, way more frustrating. And, and I, can, I cannot imagine you, Clayton, and your, and your clients, right? They, they want an answer, and we haven't been able to give them a good answer at this point as, as far as why this occurred, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you bring up a great point with the whole genome sequencing, Caesar. And a big lesson for me with this uh, Lineage 1C discussion is that recombination from a PERS perspective is different than what we think of for like influenza. And I got confused early on. Um, I was uh, discussing uh, with Giovanni from Daniel uh, Linhares' team. He was doing some similar analysis, looking at multiple viruses on the whole genome. And he was kind of showing me uh, basically, you know, where the uh, the ancestry was for each, um, uh, uh, I would say, um, genetic uh, segment. I shouldn't even say gene segment because that's what I'm trying to avoid. He was showing me where the recombination existed and where basically the ancestors were based on where you were at within the whole genome. But I'd always thought of recombination like we think of with influenza, where it's one gene segment that gets swapped for another. But as I understand it with PERS, it doesn't need to be one gene segment. The, the polymerase, polymerase can just jump from one virus to another kind of wherever it wants to. So you can have a Frankenstein virus that has multiple different ancestors represented on there. And eventually one of those is going to be more fit than the, for the environment than any of its previous ancestors and is probably going to take over. Is that a fair way to describe it? That, that's a perfect way to describe it, Clayton. And I think that's, uh, and, and I think we've known this for quite a while, you know, I think this is just the nature of pathogens and evolution, you know, that they will always take advantage of the opportunities. Here we're just giving them too many opportunities in the sense that there's one pig uh, somewhere in, within the United States may have been infected with more than one strain at the same time. And yeah, once those viruses are in that cell, once they're ready to butt out, you know, in the budding process, they don't go and choose, oh, I'm just gonna start 
you know, keep my 144L1C lineage. No, I'm just going to grab whatever's available. And that's how the viruses get uh, kind of recombined, you know. They'll just pick pieces of viruses here and there. So they'll just generate a whole new virus, right? So those progenies are, are kind of the ones that get us in trouble all the time, right? Just because we have too many circulating strains at the same time in the same region, within the same farm, within the same pig, that uh, again, it's nothing different to what you just mentioned, Clayton, influenza, right? Uh, rotavirus, I mean, we can keep going with the list. It's just the nature of pathogens that it's, uh, I guess for the virologists, for those that uh, work with evolutionary trends, this is fascinating. For mm -hmm. us, we're just trying to keep diseases out of the farms. This is not very helpful just because they just become better and better at reproducing themselves, right? And generating viral particles. Yeah. And I don't think it's unique to United States pig production at all. Um, I work with clients in other countries, and uh, there's a country that I visit regularly that uh, deals with a strain of PERS that they refer to as NADC-30. And they asked me to give a presentation on NADC-30 um, on a trip there one time, and I actually wasn't terribly familiar with it. Um, but they, they shared with me, well, you should be. This is, an, a, this is a U.S. strain of PERS, this NADC-30. And as I looked into it, it is a perfect hybrid of this NADC-30 virus that, that was here in the United States, but really never took over as a dominant strain. Well, it went to this other country, you know, presumably with animal shipments, and uh, it caused this co-infection we're talking about. You know, somewhere in that country, a pig kind of had their historical PERS virus that's unique to that country. And it was also infected with NADC-30 concurrently. And that the one cell in that pig produced a mutant that was more fit for the environment than either one of those parent strains were by themselves. And so it, it truly is just a numbers game, right? When you have co-infections within the same animal, you will eventually have co-infections within the same cell. And those co-infections will produce a hybrid virus. And now not all those hybrid viruses are going to be better fits for the environment. So they're not all going to be the new mutant strain that we end up talking about, but it's just a numbers game in terms of the more often that happens, the more likely you're going to create a new virus, a new pathogen that is better than its ancestors. And the more often you're going to have one of these lineage 144, you know, 1C viruses that dominates the industry like this one has going back to last summer. Exactly, exactly. And as you said, the more chances we give this virus to find other viruses in the same cell, we, I mean, that kind of sets a harder, or let me put it this way, we, will, we won't be able to make progress if we continue to give these opportunities to the virus, right? Because again, we have high dense regions, right? We have larger farms, which is fine, you know? But uh, whenever we have all those hotspots for recombination, and not only for Perth, right? We can take it to human pathogens, right? Yeah. Now we're Any talking pathogen. about, yeah, the, the Delta Chrome, right? Well, the Delta strain with the Omicron already infected the same individual. Well, now what are we going to do with that? Well, find a way to keep biosecurity up, personal biosecurity. Yep. But uh, the problem is, hey, can we do something about it and can we prevent it? I think we can, but we also need maybe better tools, right, in the near future. 
well, the reality is we're going to have to do something different if we want different results. Um, and, you know, as, as you said, uh, the, the, po- the progress, right? I think we have to ask ourselves, are we making progress? And if we're just doing the same thing that we've done year after year for PERS management, I don't think anybody can describe that as progress, right? We're going to have to make some changes in what we do. And, and uh, I love showing people the MCHIMP data set. I love to show them how objective we can make these things. I am always challenged when I show them that to, to highlight that we are making progress and particularly the chart that shows the percentage of animals in a per stage at a given time. The, the chart that's got the, the green color, which is stage four, and that's PERS naive. And then, you know, the red color, which is stage one, which is really active with PERS. It's those pigs that are actively infected with at least one virus. And if they're infected with two viruses, actively could be making these new mutants. And when I show them that chart, one of the questions I always get is why is there more red? right? Like we're getting worse over time in terms of the percentage of herd, the percentage of the U.S. sow herd that is actively infected with PERS at any one time. And I struggle to answer that question for anybody who asks it in terms of, you know, how are you making progress if more animals are infected? You know, do you have any thoughts, Caesar, as to why that kind of stage one population continues, unfortunately, to increase in, uh, in prevalence as we look at this over time? Uh, the, yeah, and, and I completely agree with you, and we get the same question as well. We have some hypotheses, right? We haven't been able to really, really pin down the reasons why we're seeing this, uh, this event or this behavior in category one herds. Now, we think that one of them could be that we're testing more, we're, we, have, we have processing fluids, so we're, our sensitivity increased. So now we feel more confident at saying I'm still unstable, right? So we'll we'll we'll, we'll add more farms, so we'll just keep them there for longer, right? Yeah, there's now, an, obser- you know, an observational bias, so to say, and that we're just we have a better magnifying glass to look into the farm and say, no, 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 you're not negative, even though two years ago you would have said you were with diagnostic strategies at that time. Exactly, exactly. Another one is, would there be uh, this? new specimen testing plus a new strain, right? A new strain that uh, is kind of lingering in there a bit better that uh, we can eliminate it uh, uh, as fast as we used to eliminate the other ones. That could be another one. And then the other one is over time, we've added a little bit more systems, right? To the, po- to the pool of, uh, and those systems may have been in high dense regions and maybe they struggle a little bit more with eliminating uh, the virus, or maybe they just don't want to eliminate, right? Because they don't see that as a, as a doable task. So it's kind of tricky to say which one factor is responsible for that. Now, what that graph is telling us is, hey, at least roughly ballpark 30% of the breeding herds in our database have remained or are in category one or have been in category one for at least a year, year and a half, two years, right? Now, that doesn't mean that they arrive into that category and stay there forever. We don't see that from the graph. We know it internally, who stays and who leaves that category. But still, it's concerning that we are always having that supply of positive pigs to the regions, right? Which that's what gets us in trouble down the road because like we said a few minutes ago, we cannot predict when the new virus is going to emerge and when a pig is going to get infected with another strain or two strains 
So it's kind of tricky. So I think that's our challenge today. How can we decrease the number of PCR positive pigs at different levels, right? It doesn't have to, I mean, it could be the south farm, it could be the growing pig. Uh, how can we avoid those introductions, right? So it, it's a big challenge. Yeah. And the reality is that uh, there are producers who choose to not eliminate a wild type PERS infection on their sow farm. Um, and their reasons are variable, right? Uh, I think you mentioned that some people may not feel like they can. They may feel like it's not going to be successful. Some people may have eliminated the wild type virus before only to get reinfected in you know, another year. Uh, they may not feel like it's worth it. Some people probably just don't feel like the value proposition is there. You know, producers are very sophisticated with their economic evaluations today. And, you know, they may put it down on paper and just say, listen, you know, my farm is not going to be profitable if I eradicate PERS this year. Um, but if I can just decrease the clinical signs, still live with some low level infection, but decrease the clinical signs, that's a better situation for me. And I always look at that and say, we just don't have the right tools for producers today. We don't have the right, um, you know, set of tools that we can give to the producer and, and, and allow them to be successful and ultimately eliminate this, this wild type virus from their population, because that's ultimately one, what we want to do for long-term success. Now, I would tell you that I'm, I'm super excited about, you know, new tools that come down the pipeline for PERS all the time, because I don't think we have enough of them. And there is some exciting new technology out there in the world of genomics and, and, uh, and the, the genetic world uh, about a pig that is PERS resistant. And I think the, the data that we've seen on that from a technical standpoint looks outstanding, right? We've removed the receptor from the pigs uh, that, that allows the PERS virus to sneak in, right? So we've basically taken the key away from the PERS virus and said, you're not coming in anymore. Now, uh, those pigs are not able to be used today. We still have to get through the regulatory process. But, you know, Caesar, would you look at that um, as, a, as a significant tool to help those producers that are stuck in stage one today, that PERS resistant pig? Is that something that if we can get it through the regulatory pathway is unique and different enough that it could make a big difference in the MSHIMP data in the future? Certainly, certainly, Clayton, because we just finished a, a very small survey with the PERS task force in which we ask, uh, I think we got like 100 respondents or something like that. We ask our, 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 a lot of individuals, why don't you feel comfortable eliminating the virus? And, and the, the, the reasons are kind of uh, what we've always heard. I don't feel that if there's a value there because I'm going to get infected. I don't feel like we have the tools to eliminate the virus. I don't feel like uh, um, that, that I can keep this virus out, right? There's no regional re uh, cooperation. So like you said, tools like this one, which is our based on, on the CRISPR uh, technology that has been already used in, the hum in, in human medicine will provide us with a Kind of like I want to. I don't know if it's the right term, but that kind of like a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. Like you say, you, we can have those pigs located in very strategic areas, right? It will for sure help us tremendously by not putting out those uh, PCR positive pigs, right? It will decrease tremendously the 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 amount of animals going to different areas carrying one, two, three different strains. But most importantly, I think it's gonna have a huge impact on welfare, on financials, mm -hmm. you know, on food security. And the poor producer, you know, that they have to deal with first, 
every year, every other year, uh, they'll get a break, you know, they'll get a break and they'll say, okay, I like to produce, I mean, everybody loves to produce uh, pigs without prayers, right? Absolutely. So, uh, exactly. So if we can get that tool, that will be, that will be amazing. I think that's going to be a game changer, but I think most importantly, it'll help us make sure that we continue to raise pigs responsibly, uh, welfare, fewer antibiotics, you know, it's going to be a, a, a whole game changer. So I look forward to it. I, I'm as excited as you are because I really want to see that happening in the next few years or hopefully the next few months. We don't know that yet, right? But uh, I look forward to it so that we can bring that red area of positive breeding herds uh, as low as we can. Yep. You know, the, the AASV, the American Association of Swine Veterinarians stated position on PERS is that we would like to eradicate the virus. And I know we've used the term eliminate a lot, a, a lot here today, but just to kind of set the definitions, when we get rid of a virus from one farm, we call it elimination. When we get rid of a virus from an entire area, you know, theoretically a state or a province or a country, we call that eradication. Um, you know, do you think, Caesar, that this tool could help to contribute towards a national PERS eradication effort? Is this, you know, one piece of the puzzle and we might need some more? Or do you think that this is a significant piece and may push us over the edge? I wouldn't say that it will be a significant piece. And I don't think we would be able to get it done without this piece, right? Just because there's, there's, um, there's jo just too many companies, there's just too many shared neighborhoods. Uh, but if we start taking away those receptors or those pigs that are susceptible, there's gonna be this transmission. And then those folks that may not have access to this technology, well, they will be encouraged to say, okay, now the game is different. Now my risk is gonna be different. I may be able to go for uh, elimination, right? Because they perhaps the region, is gonna be, uh, yeah, still density is gonna be high, but the amount of pigs that are positive uh, are gonna represent a lower risk. So I think it will play a very important role if we really wanna go that route, right? Again, we've seen ex examples in the past, right? Uh, I mean, Chile did a, a good job in the 2000s. Yeah, there was an reintroduction. Now they're very close to eliminating it again. There were some examples in Europe that, yep, there was an introduction and they just uh, uh, stamped it out pretty much. So I think that that's possible. You know, again, it'll take time. I think it's it'll take time, but still, if we really wanna uh, change the dynamics of the virus, we need to get rid of those receptors. If not, the virus will just continue to infect and it'll make our work a little bit harder, right? Yeah, it's, it's always difficult to be optimistic about PERS. And we're recording this on March 18th. And, you know, Caesar, I'm looking out my window here at the podcast studios and it's 43 degrees and raining, you know, and so it's especially hard to be optimistic about PERS when that's going on. But the reality is we've got some stuff coming together. Um, you know, this PERS resistant pig that hopefully our folks in the regulatory agents can help to help us to get approved. Um, you know, we've got the swine health improvement program that, that Roger Main is champion. Um, we have the need to learn about eradication. We have a constant threat of African swine fever and other diseases we may have to stamp out. 
I think when you put that, you know, sense of urgency created by the, the concerns for foreign animal disease and, and loss of market access, when you put the sense of urgency on the fact that, you know, pigs that uh, pig groups of growing pigs that get hit with this purse strain can lose 20, 30, 40, sometimes even 50% of their pigs. When you put those together with a new technology, you know, the, the opportunity and the need are, are really coming together nicely. And I am encouraged about, you know, what we may be talking about a year from now in terms of, of a much rosier uh, outlook for PERS than we've ever had. And I would remind all of us that, you know, this technology with the PERS resistant pig is not only available to the United States. Um, and so if we are, if we are unsuccessful in um, coming to some sort of regulatory acceptance, there's going to be other countries that probably are successful with that. And I don't think we want to be in a position where we are not the technology leaders for PERS management, because that's not a good position to be in from a producer standpoint. Agree, agree, agree. Now we would, we would, uh, we would certainly learn a lot from this, and we would certainly be able to demonstrate that these technologies that may scare some will actually generate a lot of value at different levels, right? And again, we need to remind people this is not something that has not been used before. I think this is something that has already proved that there's a benefit, there's a value, it's safe, right? So. Uh, I think the more we share this with with the with the consumer itself, I guess, uh, with the audience, the more they're gonna be willing to listen and understand that this is not gonna be creating a harmful pig from consumption from a consumption standpoint, right? So I think it's a hopefully again, hopefully we can see that happening pretty soon, right? Yeah, you know what's harmful the the animal suffering caused by PERS virus all of the antibiotics we have to use for control of the secondary bacteria that flourish when the animal is infected with PERS. The, you know, the, the mental well-being of our farm staff is they have to carry out dead pig after dead pig, after abortion, after stillborn. Um, those are problems, right? Um, our perception of, of the gene editing process that uh, if, if that is a problem, let science highlight that that is a problem. But um, I, I don't anticipate that'll be the case. Exactly, exactly. Caesar, we talked about the uh, MSHIMP data, the, the Morrison Swine Health uh, Monitoring Program. Uh, be remiss if we didn't give uh, a, uh, a shout out to Bob Morrison, who's not able to be here and, and celebrate this with us. But Bob was a, a wonderful mentor for me early in my career and somebody who, you know, in very few words could really um, uh, help a young veterinarian like me with perspective. And he always did work that mattered. And you know that because we're still talking about his work, right? His work lived on well beyond him. If there are producers out there that are interested in your information and maybe even want to contribute and be involved, how do, how do they get involved with a project like that, Caesar? So they can, yeah, and thanks for that, uh, Clayton. So they can easily just go on, the, on Google and just type MSHIMP, uh, UMN, and that'll direct, that, direct them to our, our, our University of Minnesota website. Now, Talk to talk to your veterinarian. And most of the veterinarians in the U.S. I want to I want to say that are familiar with the project. If you're interested, they will know how to connect us with you so that uh, we can talk about enrolling your system. Right? It's pretty easy. We want uh, we want uh, like Bob at some point said, this is meant to be used as a learning tool. Yes, we're gonna run some analysis. We're not gonna point fingers at anyone. This is just for us to share data uh, so that we can learn, right? So it's as simple as we just 
start talking uh, about uh, the processes. Uh, there's going to be confidentiality or participation agreements. We may have to ask you for release forms when it comes to diagnostics or the logo. It's pretty simple. And then once we get all that done, we'll start requesting the data, right? And the data is very simple. You know, we just want to get locations, reading her locations. Nowadays, we're asking for growing pig locations. And for, for pathogens like PERS, we may want to get a, a we may want to request your sequences, right? Just so that we can continue doing those analysis. Or if you happen to have uh, the the unfortunate situation that you're going to an outbreak, you can send the sequence to us, and we can run analysis for you, and we can tell you, yeah, it's in the region, it's a very similar virus, and uh, and then we will all learn, right? So that's exactly an example of what we did uh, during 2020 and 2021 we kind of started that investigation. So it's a pretty simple process. Again, the whole point of this is let's get everybody working together. Let's get everybody sharing because the more we do this, the better prepared we're gonna be once we really have to act with a, one of those nasty foreign animal diseases, right? So uh, that's the whole, that's the overarching goal of this. Yeah. And all the information is confidential. I know PERS and PED can be very sensitive topics for producers and veterinarians alike, but all the information is confidential. It is blinded. Um, the other folks who are participating, they can maybe see your results, but they have no idea which system is yours or, you know, which data points are yours. Um, and I, I really uh, give your team a lot of credit you, for over a decade now, you guys have kept that information confidential. And even for those of us that participate, you know, we, we get to see the trends, but we don't ever get to point fingers. Um, and for people that are looking to, to point fingers, this is not the program for you. You're not going to get any information that's going to help you go out and sue somebody or something like that, because it's not in there. Those identifiers are all removed. Is that fair? That's, that's completely fair. And, and again, a shout out to you and all the other participants for trusting us and for continuing to, uh, on a weekly basis, report whether you have eliminated the virus or whether you've had a, a break, because that's what keeps that pro this program going. Of course, the data, the data influence, but also the the the, uh, the financial partner, which today is this Fine Health Information Center. Right? If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't be talking about this project, right? So it's, it's, it's important to mention that. Now, one other thing is I have felt in the last few years uh, that not that before veterinarians wouldn't talk to each other, no. I, have, I, have, I think in the last few years, most of the companies uh, and most of the practitioners are willing to share pretty much everything, right? If you ask me, when I started with Bob as a student in 2008, when uh, he got me involved in the Stevens Purse Regional Project, back then it was a different story. Everybody wanted to keep, the, keep their, their data to themselves. That's when regional projects started getting some traction, but uh, the level of sharing back then is nothing compared to what we have today. Today I, got, I have the, the, the benefit of connecting different companies that want to work together to investigate a regional outbreak. At first, we keep it confidential, but once they give us the green light, they are happy, comfortable with us disclosing, hey, Clayton wants to talk to you. Clayton has this outbreak and he wants to figure out whether there's any epidemiological links that maybe you both can work together and try to 
increase your biosecurity, your compliance, I don't know, but uh, that wouldn't happen if we wouldn't have this kind of databases, right? Yep, teamwork makes the dream work, right? If you can exactly. partner up, you've got a better chance of success than going at it alone. Exactly. Caesar, thank you very much for everything you've done on PERS management for the industry. Thank you for the time today and being so gracious with it. Um, I do think that uh, it's probably time for us to sign off here. Um, I'm sure we'll have an opportunity to discuss PERS management again in the future. Hopefully that PERS resistant pig gets here soon and it's in the rear view mirror at some point, but uh, I bet we'll have another couple opportunities to chat about it in the next couple of months. Thank you very much for coming on. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, my name is Clayton Johnson. And for Dr. Cesar Corzo with the University of Minnesota, thank you very much for joining us on Swine Doc Pod with Carthage. Please have a great rest of your day.